We are 97 million people population. And I think the, the young rates are pretty high. We are one of like the young kind of nations. And I have a really strong belief in the power of people. I, I totally believe that the power people, the people power can overcome all these corporate greed or all the government maybe not right yet policy. Just because I think that even the corporates or the governments are also people. So if we can convince people, if you can educate and inspire and engage people, so no matter if they are the community or the government or they are the corporate, they will be the one who make the changes that we want to see. And we want to work on the youth just because they are the one who can learn the fastest and who can adapt and who, can, who are brave enough to do anything about it. Welcome to Animalia, where we cover all things conservation, climate justice, and sustainability. Today on Animalia, we are talking to my dear friend, Hong. She is one of the most inspiring and incredible people I have met in my journey working in the space. She's the founder of Change Vietnam, and it's now the largest environmental and climate NGO in Vietnam. And Hong actually didn't start her career in this space. She started as a marketing executive in a newspaper. And it was a trip that she took to Antarctica where everything changed for her. And she'll talk about this in the episode. And she came back and she dedicated herself and her life um, to fighting for this planet. She went on to work at WWF Vietnam before then founding Change. So... The work she's doing in Vietnam and has done already speaks for itself. And today we are specifically going to talk to Hong about the work she does with Vietnam youth. And we're actually going to have two young adults from Vietnam who have been through the change program join us briefly to introduce themselves as well. And specifically, we're getting after how important it is to change the culture of society and the culture of a generation to be environmentally forward and to be on Team Earth, more or less, and and the importance of working with the youth and doing so. Looking forward to chatting with Hong, and and uh, let's get into it. Well, I'm excited to chat with you because I think you're actually one of the most important climate heroes in the world. Not really? No, I think you're very humble. But no, I think what you've built, you haven't just built an organization, you've built a movement. And in a part of the world that's like very important, Vietnam is a big country that with a population that has been growing as a lot of countries in Southeast Asia. And I think it's just so important that we have leaders like yourself in, in really important areas like Vietnam. So I, I know you're very humble, but I, I hope you're very proud of everything you've accomplished. And I'm sure you also probably, like me, feel like there's so much more work to do that you can't take any time to enjoy what you've already done. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You feel like, oh my God, I haven't done anything yet. And just so why sometimes you feel like, oh, maybe I should stop. <laughs> Have you ever felt that? Yeah, no, don't stop. Don't stop. Oh yeah, no. Um, I wanted to first talk about like why it's so important to, as part of addressing climate change, to address culture. Because... I think a lot of people just think of addressing climate change through government action, corporations becoming greener, and it's so important to actually change the culture of how people think and behave and what they want out of life and what they're optimizing for. And of course, youth culture is the most impressionable. It's much harder to change older cultures from where where they've thought. So what is it, I mean, do would you agree with the statement that cultural change and and is as important to climate change as innovations in energy and innovations in, in, in science and cutting back our emissions. Do you, do you agree that cultural change is equally as important? Absolutely. I think not just on climate change. In Vietnam, we are working on other environmental issues, wildlife trade, plastic pollution, air pollution, and all kind of things. But the only thing that would make people interested um, in these kind of a very abstract kind of issues, something that they think, oh, it's too big, it's beyond me, is culture. Because culture connects people. Culture is something that 
at least 97 million people of Vietnam share one thing that they could understand and share and find it relatable. So instead of like talking about like super macro level kind of abstract things, we're trying to connect people with songs and musics and dramas and arts and and people and the spirits of young people who join our movement because they speak the language and they they know they are aware of their own local environmental issues and they will come up with their own solution which is very relatable to the culture to the tradition and practices that they use in their localities and that works a lot better than like all these campaigns against the government or the corporate greets because it doesn't work in this country because how politically sensitive things is here uh, talking about climate change. So yeah, we use a lot of culture. Can you share a little more about that, about and specific to Vietnam, why talking climate change is so sensitive politically? So it comes back to a little on our political views so we are probably one of the few countries that only has one party, like ruling communist party. So, yeah, yeah, we don't have like separation of power and, and things like that. So it's very sensitive to talk about anything negative, because even if it's climate change or twilight trade issue, if it's negative, it means it implies that we are uh, saying that the government is not doing a good job. What I mean? So and it's not. Uh, allowed. Well, it's not encouraged, even on mainstream media or social media. It's very sensitive to talk about the climate change just because they feel that, hey, are you blaming us for all our wrong economic policies? And in fact, they are very proud of all the achievements. And actually, they have done a good job. I mean, after the world and all these decades of like subsidy, and, and now we are in a pretty good shape of like economic uh, growth. So, so we, so I don't know if you're aware, but Vietnam is one of the most impacted by climate change. But also, we are the fourth or the fifth largest coal burner or coal developer in the world. So we are kind of like, okay, we're talking about climate change, but at the same time, we burn, we heat up the planet, and we try to 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 point it out to the people and say, hey, we are suffering from air pollution, we're suffering from all these climate change consequences, but we can do better than other developed countries. We can avoid the mistakes that developed countries have made, and we can just have so much solar and wind and so much potential here because we have we are in a tropical countries and we have all these natural resources, so let's use them. So instead of like, yeah, criticizing how we are really heating up the planet, we are trying to encourage the community and young people to say good things, to talk about solutions and say talk about the power that individuals can have and the changes that individuals can make to make Vietnam a better place. So yeah, a lot of culture, arts, we use so many celebrities, so many local celebrities have joined us because they want to speak up and help us share our view with their arts and cultural talents. Mm. There are a lot of pieces to climate change, right? There's pieces on emissions and energy and car pollution. There's the electrical grid. There's where we get our energy from. There's the meat industry and, and the general food industry and the climate footprint of that. There's the the way we the way we live and the way we plan our cities. There's so many kind of aspects. There's of course plastics and pollution and waste. There are a lot of parts of addressing the climate problem. There is no one single solution. We have to address all of these. I'm curious in, in Vietnam and the work you've done, what parts seem to resonate the most? Like where do you, where do you see the most progress happening? And then where do you think there's still a lot a long way to go? Actually we have we used to identify in the past that energy was the biggest issue as we again we were a large coal developer and we were campaigning for years either with the banks who invest in coal or with the governments and try to encourage them to revise the, the master plan of the coal, of the energy development. And we, we succeeded really with our movement and with the pressure from the public celebrities as well as scientists and corporate business leaders. So we succeeded some of that as well. But I think the more 
inspiring and positive thing that we see that really motivates us to move further is the, the change in people's awareness. So when I started out this climate change activism 20 or so years ago, nobody believed me. Nobody would listen. They would just come to my talk and like, just because I'm like a talkative person and I can show some fun videos, but but rather than that, they, we would really find it so difficult to really engage them in, in actions. But 20 years later, right now, actually, you have to come here and see massive um, growth of small groups like the one that Up and CERN were just running. Because usually the, the young people or the community in those areas, in those impacted areas of climate change, they just like, blame the oh the it's because of nature as they say and they would never think that it's something that the local community can do something about it but after years of like us or many other ngos and and a lot of other ngos are working on we have empowered a lot of small community groups like the ones that we are doing in the Mekong Delta and from there they grew into bigger and bigger movement and they could do things on their on the ground in their own villages and and people are now really aware of, not only aware of the situation but they want to be part of the solution so like there are innovators coming from the communities there are farmers who invented some machines that can work well with the with the, the drought and salinization so a lot of inventions and solutions have rise up from the community which never happened 20 years ago and so now I think there's hope and there's definitely a very bright future ahead of us if we can in, involve and engage millions of Vietnamese people right now we're trying to work on. Well, so much of the work you've done at Change has has been youth-focused. And you have such an amazing program to get the kids in Vietnam and the young adults in Vietnam involved. Why why have you been so focused on that? Why Why, why is getting the younger generation involved early on versus say spending a lot of time trying to talk to the government and corporations and these type of things. Why, why I think I know the answer because we've kind of talked about a little bit, but I want to kind of hear from, from you. Why is, why have you focused so much on the youth in Vietnam? We are 97 million people population. And I think the, the young rates are pretty high. We are one of like the young kind of nations. And I have a really strong belief in the power of people. I, I totally believe that the power people, the people power can overcome all these corporate greed or all the government, maybe not right yet policy, just because I think that even the corporates or the governments are also people. So if we can convince people, if you can educate and inspire and engage people, so no matter if they are the community or the government or they are the corporate, they will be the one who make the changes that we want to see. And we want to work on the youth just because they are the one who can learn the fastest and who can adapt and who, can, who are brave enough to do anything about it rather than just like being super lazy because they don't have any other interests. They have absolutely a blank, white, <laughs> brand new mind to accept new knowledge and to adopt new innovations and listen to new ideas and open to co partnership and cooperation and collaboration with, with the international communities. That we don't see in older generation. People are too worried about their jobs or their you know, pension or their other interests. They don't want to hurt or um, make other embarrassed. And that would prevent uh, a lot of people from taking some action. But young people who are, we are working with, look at CERN and up, oh my God, I have this motivation to get up every day and be being so eager to go to work just because of these young people. When we go to those training camps and see their faces so eager to learn something new and so passionate about their, their homeland, then you know that, oh, this is the real impact that, that I'm having. So, and it also came from my own experience. I, I went to Antarctica, I became the first Vietnamese person to go to Antarctica 24 years ago. And I was such a naive young person, not knowing anything. And then just because of that expedition that 
inspired me and educated me so much. And I suddenly changed all my uh, mindset and everything about life. And and, and I switched to environmental uh, activism. So I thought if I could do the same thing, if I could create the same opportunities for all the millions of Vietnamese young people in my country, then I can create the, the change that everyone desires. I guess that's a good segue for talking to Sun and and Up about about their stories. So let's 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 hear from them directly. How old are Up and Son and how did they come to change? So Son is 21 and Up is 22. Up joined the class camp in 2018 when she was only 19 years old and she was like really it's, 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 it's a camp that we had probably the most active, like the most crazy and, and positive campus that we've had after years of organizing it. And I, it was organized in Bing Thuận, which is like also the land of like a lot of polluting factories, but also a lot of new solar factories by that time. So we organized in that province. So we, can, we could bring them to a wind solar farm and they witnessed the whole thing, like, hey, this is the solution for, for our country. But anyway, the, that camp was full of like new ideas and concepts because we changed concept from the previous years. And then only after that year, we decided to not just like train them, but also gave them opportunities to write their own projects and then win some money, win some grants to go back to their own country and uh, to their own countryside and do their projects. So they were the one I can share with you later in, on some links, the project that they continue in their, own, uh, in their own province later on, from workshops with their university students to flash mobs in center city to attract attention about climate change. And I have to tell you how bizarre those experiences were because they were some of the projects were not come uh, were not supported by the local government. Sometimes the police would come and kind of literally stop them from doing the activities, and they were so scared. So a lot of things like that. But that gave them the confidence of hey, so at least we are creating this attention, and and it seems people are starting to listen. So and that would give them the confidence that they would never have before, sitting in their own province and like not really knowing about the world. And CERN was the camper of the 2019 camp, which was like another kind of format that we organized because that time we partnered with UNICEF. So they wanted to empower young people, the UNICEF, like with their mindset of like empowering young, empowering young people. And so it was a little dif- different format again, but also CERN was the one that he came to the camp first, like very timid, very quiet like really really quiet and not confident but after four or five days of the camp and he be suddenly he's transformed into a totally different leader and then later he he led a home group of uh, a project green river that that he might have mentioned in in his speech so the green river is started out with just like first just to educate a lot of rivers in the mekong delta and the the floating markets on those really trash like have so much trash and garbage and they was just intended to really educate the the farmers and the sailors there not to trash the river but later on they invented a a whole like they invented themselves a whole machine to collect the floating trash on the river and the the machine can can really operate on river run on the river and collect the trash and and it's it's just amazing how just one thousand dollars of our seed fund can do for them like really they created the home project and invented the home machine and then they they scale up with their projects with more funding from unicef and later on they won so many other prizes and so if and this is how we could convince our donors like hey with just this small money you can really you can really generate a whole new generation of young people taking action so up uh, tell us about your your background and how you how you learned about change and how you got involved. So hi again from Vietnam and my full name is Uyên Phuong 
but it's very difficult for foreigner to announce to pronounce that. So people usually call me up. I'm 22 years old now, and it is my last year in university and major in marketing. So I'm a campus of Vietnam Climate Leadership Camp. And I have the chance to be an organizer of the next camp in 2020, which is camp that uh, Sean attended. As I was just a freshman at the time I joined VCLI, Vietnam Climate Leadership Camp, I know nothing about climate change, plastic pollution, wildlife conservation, and the camp actually blows my mind away as I was inspired by Miss Hong Huang. I learned a lot about environmental issue of the Mekong Delta of Vietnam in general. And I'm so ashamed to say that I didn't aware all of these people because we don't have the opportunities to learn about that at school, from primary school to high school. Then I changed my mind And now, three years later, I'm now part of change organization and keep working, keep fighting to be an environmentalist. So I'm quite happy because home cannot join us today because I'm quite shy to give compliments to someone in front of them. So home is really my idol. She is an inspirational leader that I really want to become one day. So I'm trying keep working, improve myself to be an environmentalist like her in the future. Amazing. Up, what areas in environmentalism and climate do you want to focus on? So I I learned about climate change in general when I attained VCLC camp. But now I'm working in uh, plastic, plastic area in change. But yeah, maybe also we also do some came about climate change. But I'm very interested in plastic because it is very close. It is a very um, close topic, and that everyone can change and can take part in. So. I can say plastic is my most concerned problem. My name is Nguyễn Hoàng Sơn. I'm 21 years old and I come from in Kinyang. Kinyang is a province of Mekong Delta, Vietnam. I have been following my parents' river business since childhood and I love the rivers. I love the nature around me. But now the rivers are heavily polluted by many factors especially the rivers in the Mekong Delta, where I was born and raised. That led to an unstable climate situation here. Soon then, more concerns about climate change. At that time, I did not have much knowledge about climate change. I just know that using plastic is not good. At that time, I participated in VCOC. VCOC is mean Vietnam Climate Leadership Camp, which the We took place in Kangtao province of central province of Mekong Delta within four, four days, 2019. At 2019, I, I met a lot of young people who were inspired by the, by the environment. And especially, I met Hong Huang. This is my idol. And you are the ones who are inspired to love the environment more extensively. After joining VCLC for four days, I have the most basic knowledge about climate change. I have the tools and knowledge to fulfill my desire, desire to establish Green River. After that, I was about to join to mark came within the framework of VCLC. Now I have knowledge about climate change, about tipping point, and especially lead a social project. Question here as when River I and everyone in VCOC were established earlier. So far I have I have led Green River for more than a year and I have made a lot of impact to community, protecting more rivers in Vietnam from pollution. 
and attracts a lot of young people to join action for the climate. How has this change for you in becoming aware of climate and working on this now and being so committed to it? How has that changed or impacted your social life or your friends or family? Are you are you then passing on the knowledge to them? How is how does it impact your your kind of social life? Okay. Um so when I was in my first year in university, when I was a freshman, that was also the, the year I attended VCLC. But not many many students in university are around me aware of climate change or plastic pollution. But I I can really feel all the changes around me which related to climate change because I come from Banjai province, which is a province in the Mekong Delta. So last year when coronavirus scared the whole country and also Vietnam, my homeland was also threatened by drought and salt intrusion. And Mekong Delta struggled to find fresh water as these problems continued day after day, month after month. But at that time, not many people knew because the whole country was fighting against the pandemic. And we, all the people from Mekong Delta, we never thought that we would lack of water to live on. And not only us, other provinces like Long An, Tingzang, Banjai, Kingzang, and Kamau have declared an emergency. But this problem not only happened last year, but it's happened like five years, like like about five years. But last year was an emergency because it some drive and social intrusion are especially bad and even worse than in 2016. So if, if someone tell me that they didn't believe in climate change, I will invite them to my hometown someday to let them experience the situation that their lack of water, you don't have water to take a shower, to cook, to water on the trees or flowers. So normally the, the Mekong Delta turn salty only for a month or, or a month or from three months. But last year we have to face uh, this problem for like six months. So it's very, it's very hard for us. And sometimes I, I think that I should quit the the environmentalist part of me because it's, it's not really my major. But then I experience on the uh, consequence in my homeland. So it motivates me to continue this job to inspire more and more people to take part in because we, the young, will face on, on this impact in the future. Not our parents, not our grandma, grandfather. It's us who have to face all of these problems and have to find a solution for it. And and I think they both made some excellent points. And it's it's just really yeah, it's really it's really nice to hear. It's energizing and inspiring to hear from the youth from any part of the world to know that they're. I think sometimes working in this space, and I get this for myself, it's good to just be reminded you're not alone because I can feel very lonely at times working on these issues because a lot of my family and a lot of the friends I grew up with, like nobody's talking about this and nobody, and it's not that they're bad people. They're just caught up in the the race of life like everybody else. And, and I have made it such a priority for me and it can feel lonely being obsessed with with these issues so it's nice to sort of just hear from people like up and and son and know that there's there's more there's more coming <laughs> sure i think it's 
I think if uh, so many times I felt lonely and and hopeless and desperate and angry and mad and like why people don't care why am I doing all this, wasting all my time and not making money <laughs> enough money I mean so yeah I, I if you feel like that you probably just come to Vietnam and and go with me and you feel less lonely. Your story into climate action started in a very interesting way. I believe you were working as a marketing executive at a local newspaper, and you got the chance to join an expedition to Antarctica. And it was on that trip to the Arctic that everything changed for you. You came back from that trip determined to spend the rest of your life fighting for this planet. What was it about that experience that had such a profound impact on you? Actually, uh, it's the whole thing that really... Uh, blew my mind but I remember one exact moment when because I as I explained to you I had I had been just a marketing person working for English newspaper making a lot of money by that time and the country was opening up and so we were kind of one of the very few who like kind of like consider ourselves as elite making the money working with foreigners that kind of like really proud of ourselves and when I went to Antarctica and I just suddenly met with Robert Swan our leader and other scientists on the group and the expedition leaders. And I suddenly I found like, hey, these people have something that I don't have. They have passion for something. They have like real, real, true, deep interest in something that I didn't have. Like something that I just like, all my fun came from all the parties or traveling around or like going to eat something special and expensive. And these people believe in something so much larger, bigger than themselves. And I didn't have that. And so I started to question myself, like, why I was born in this world? What, what am I here for? And that really triggered me to become, to really think of, like, who I am and what, um, why I'm here and what I can do. And those moments when I see those people, like, they, they worked so hard for decades just to work on one thing that they believe in. And I thought that probably I had to find that one thing that, were, that I will believe in my whole life. So I started to think about that. And then the whole expedition gave me an idea of like all these world problems and global warming. Um, and then when I see the connection between that global warming in Antarctica and all this climate change in Vietnam, I say, okay, so probably this is the one that I can work on because I have this privilege to witness this and to learn all this from these amazing people, probably I have to do something about it to magnify and to amplify the experience that I had. You know, I had such a similar experience with my first few trips to Laos, working with the Mandalay Elephant Conservation. And it was my first time seeing conservation work firsthand and learning about these magnificent animals and elephants and the plight they go through. And the impact they have on forestation as a keystone species and just the passion and dedication of the Mandalau team working to protect them. And it honestly just changed everything for me. Yeah, I think that feeling of like when we, you are in Laos and then I, I was in Antarctica, like, oh, I don't know anything about this world. Like I, we were just in our city and like our community and think that, oh, we are everyone. <laughs> but when you see something so so wide, so different from you, and like, oh, you are so tiny. You are like tiny in this world. You are nothing. <laughs> like, so that feeling really make us a lot more humble. And I think we need to see more of that and to make us more and more humble and then so, so that we can learn more. Transitioning back to the discussion on shifting culture and starting with the youth and doing so. What are your thoughts, Hong, on the need and, and benefit of integrating climate and environmental curriculums, essentially climate literacy, into schools? There is some movement starting to happen on that front in the U.S. Actually, last year, the state of New Jersey was the first to pass legislature mandating climate literacy is put into K-12 through schools. Is this also happening in Vietnam? Definitely. That's what actually what we have been pushing for. But it's not easy at all to change the, the curriculum of the public schools here um, because here the government decides everything, not the community or NGOs like me. But I think it's... It's positive to, to know that, at least at public school. So my, my son, is, he's following at some private school, and they do have climate 
change a curriculum. Of, of course, it's like very basic in science and and not really like deep into kind of like movement or action, but they are already starting with public private school. But I am aware that like 95% maybe of all the school kids in Vietnam don't have access to this kind of curriculum. And that's why we're trying to have these courses and classes, um, extracurriculum classes, so that they can join us. And I'm proud just because they, these kids that we are training every year come from all the public school or even from the, the provinces where they don't get the, the attention, the, the care that they deserve. But they come just because they want to learn about climate change because people from social media or mainstream media even, they are aware of climate change. They just like don't get it at school. And so the proactive one, the one who really want to make change, would really proactively go and find the information or find the knowledge that they want to learn. But I think soon enough, I, I hope so, I hope so, if America or other developed countries can have this curriculum in your public school, then probably other countries will follow and then, and then it will happen in Vietnam as well. But definitely this is something that should be included in the, in the formal official curriculum. Do you imagine the resistance to integrating climate literacy will come from those who see this as propaganda and the political pressure they put on to resist change? Actually, it's not specifically on climate change. I think in Vietnam, the education system has been designed for decades and it wouldn't change much because every time it changed, it costs a lot of money, I think. It costs a lot of money to reprint all the textbooks and retrain, I don't know how many teachers across the country and we don't have that resources. Or at least the government doesn't want to spend that money. They want to, to well, they are still saying that we are still a developing country. So the money should be spent on infrastructure or like other economic growth incentives rather than invest in some textbooks. So I think money, financial incentives is one very key. And also, I have to say, the mindset, the awareness of the government leaders or of the people working at the Ministry of uh, Education. But I hope that, I, I really hope that someday soon, the young people right now who are learning overseas, I, I guess, there, will be, there are a lot of Vietnamese studying abroad right now, would come back and become leaders of this Ministry of Education or Ministry of Health and Ministry of Environment. They will be the one to make the changes. And that's why it's so key to educate young people right now. They will be our future leaders. So we have to invest right now. Ah, uh, Yeah, that's such a great point you make about the, uh, the costs of changing public school curriculums and integrating those changes that I don't think I have factored in enough. So, so thanks for pointing that out. In general, is, is climate change as much of a politically charged topic in Vietnam as it is here in the U.S.? So we have another type of problem. Yeah, we don't have two Democrats and Republican parties to, to be opposed to each other. But they are the ones who believe that they hold the power. They are the ultimate power holder. And that means that whatever they decide that is right should be right. And so for years, we have been depending a lot on these fossil fuels because we have coal in the country, we have, and all the energy sector, the very key important sectors, education, health, especially energy, mining, all that, monopoly, like just the government doing it, no one else can do. And, and, and that's why it's very difficult for us, for anyone, for NGOs to say otherwise. And when we're trying to promote renewable energy, I think they will just see that as like, okay, another cost to invest in something new in innovation and why do I have to do that? Why we can dig up coal and sell it and, and burn it and to create energy. And also a lot of electricity, power companies and many other industries are governed by state. And I think the whole system has been running there for like decades and they just how to say, they benefit from that and they don't want to change uh, because that's their benefit. I hope you understand what I mean. So this monopoly and subsidy, like all this subsidy of electricity and all the arguments like, hey, coal energy is so much cheaper than renewable energy just because they never count all these expenses for health, for pollution, for all so many other lung disease 
patients and, and how soil is and, and river is so polluted. They don't count environmental costs in. That's why they think that energy, coal or fossil fuels is so much cheaper than wind and coal, uh, wind and, and solar. So that's, that way they convince because they have the, the media as well. So they can convince the public as well to believe that, yeah, fossil fuels is a lot cheaper. And so things wouldn't move really much just because even the power, the people believe in that, the media believe in that. I think it, it only takes really the whole series of bad, bad, bad air pollution that happened recently in the last few years, really bad, like Hanoi has been always on top of the, of the air visual kind of app, the air um, quality index app. And we, Tano is on top on, in so many months. And then people realize that, hey, this is something serious rather than like talking about like climate change, which is like they think it's in 20, 30 more years. But now air pollution is something that they're suffering from every day. And now we can relate. We can make the connection between all these factories and industries and all technology coal plants around the cities that is really causing this uh, air pollution. And people start to listen. And then the media start to listen. So I think it, it will take a lot of factors from people's awareness, from the, yeah, sometimes it takes a whole disasters for people to realize uh, things are not going right. And then we also have a lot of good influence and lobby, I have to say, from the solar and wind companies from other countries coming in and they want to lobby the government as well and say, hey, this is also providing financial incentive and also economic growth for the country, not just the coal power. And now the government is really making the change um, that we didn't expect that they would make the change. So I think it's it's looking more positive from now on, I hope. There, there are two industries within Vietnam that have come under scrutiny more and more for its impact on climate and the natural world. The first being the clothing and apparel and sneaker manufacturing industry, where Vietnam produces a lot of the world's products and has really benefited from fast fashion to feed those those manufacturing plants. However, we certainly now know fast fashion creates a ton of waste and many of these products are made in the cheapest, most efficient way, not the most sustainable or climate friendly or even labor friendly way where there's a lot of labor issues and fair fair labor, fair wage issues with these plants as well. The second is traditional medicine and its role in the use of wildlife products. What are your thoughts, Hong, on these two industries, and do you see them changing in Vietnam right now? Actually, as you mentioned, those fast fashion, I think we are the manufacturing country for a lot of brands. And in fact, in many provinces, it provides GDP for the province and provides jobs. And the local people are grateful <laughs> to those. And I have to say that it's, it's nothing bad. I think if it's properly managed, if the government also interferes um, with, well, we don't, I have to say, we don't have like independent trade union or labor's union as in other countries. But sometimes we do have something like women association or farmers association or some kind of association that, that partly protects the rights of these laborers. However, it's not at the level that that should be, that should happen. And I have to say that I, we don't have a solution to that yet, unless uh, I have seen a lot of progress made by NGOs and international NGOs working on labor's rights. And that helps specifically on, on the side that, they, that the project's happening, and which, which is good, which is great. So I have a friend who's running life of a Vietnamese NGO who works in hundreds of factories across Vietnam to make sure that all these laborers' rights ensured. But still, it's, it's, it's minimal. It's nothing compared to all the work that needs to be done. And I have to say, we cannot do much unless consumers in developed countries, when they buy, I know, H&M or when they buy some Nike or something, they would demand the, con- the companies to show them evidence of all these proper, appropriate labor procedures and everything and respect of labor's rights in the countries like Vietnam or, or other manufacturing countries. Without that, that pressure from the consumers, it's very hard for us to, to create that kind of pressure here. And I have to say, NGOs working on this are also very understaffed or under-resourced in this country. 
the same with environmental NGOs. <laughs> mm. And oh, and wildlife. Uh, actually, wildlife trade is one of the focus that change is working on. And we are a lot of times we really we are stopped by the question like, hey, if this is livelihood of the people, how can you stop it? And I have to say that the the rate of people living off the forestry resources and wild animals is minimal compared to the one that is totally just hunts and poach wildlife just for the food for rich people, wealthy families, or even fees of government or corporate parties. And I have to say that it's, it's not really a big issue at all if the government is taking law enforcement seriously. Because we do have laws, we do have the penal code saying that these species need to be protected. But there's no police, there's no one going around and do the arrest or do the detention of the consumers or of all those restaurants selling all this just because they don't think that wildlife is anything priority. They think that, again, economic growth is important. Getting out of COVID, economic recovery is super important, but not like saving some wildlife. And that's why we are, what we change has been really doing is just like raising the profile, the importance of biodiversity, of like you are not really protecting the rights of those people living of the forest at all. You're just like benefiting those illegal traders and smugglers who make so much more money and only a few traffickers now and then just like paid traffickers get jailed. But the ones who are like really behind all this, paying for all these tons and tons of ivory or rhino horns are the ones who are safe and free. So we just want to bring the justice to the whole society. I don't want people to lose money to buy rhino horn just because they believe that it can cure their deaths, cancer, because it doesn't. But just because these illegal traders and smugglers, they make up these stories and people just have to buy in and they believe and, and then they lose the money for all those illegal criminals. So we just want to bring justice to that. If you could wave a magic wand and change anything in Vietnam today, what, what would it be? Um... So I, I was aware of all these environmental problems that Vietnam had 20 or so years ago. And I really wanted to have that magic wand that I just, you just mentioned. So I thought, oh, maybe the World Bank can have, or maybe all these US AID can have because they have so much money and they can solve the problems. I believe so. It turned out that we really, money that doesn't solve everything <laughs> and not... The, the biggest organization can solve anyone's problem. I think we, the Vietnamese people, have to be aware of the problems and do it themselves. And so in the, I, I envision like my dream country, Vietnam, would be the country that every citizen is just like up or soon. Like these normal young people who comes from like not knowing much, but just having interest in their own local problems and wanting to do something about it. I think unless you can mobilize millions of Vietnamese people who are aware of the issues and wanting to do something about it, we can never solve our problems. So awareness, education, engagement, and empowerment, like really you have to provide them with the right tools or even money or resources and the support that they need to solve the problems and they won't be able to do it. You've now been working as a leader in the climate space for Vietnam for over two decades. Looking back at your time and and these last 20 years, 20 plus years, how would you describe changes you've seen in the country, the climate debate and the climate issue? Still the people, (laughs) still the change in people that we could engage. Because sometimes we've, as I told you so many times, I felt stuck. I just like, okay, I want to stop. I want to give up. Like, it doesn't work. But looking back, and every five years or ten years, I see huge milestone in people's awareness and change in the general public kind of like level of awareness. Ten years ago, nobody talks about climate change and air pollution and, and plastic pollution on social media because social media didn't exist. But now if you just like go on Facebook, Everyone talks about air pollution if it's happening, or everyone talks about plastics pollution, and and people become more interested and become more concerned, and they think that this is 
their concern as well, not just like, oh, this is the World Bank problem, so this is the, the WHO, or this is the UN problems. It's, it's my problem. And I think that is the positive change that, that I have seen that really motivates me to move and to go on further. And especially the young people that I met, that I talked to you about, they are my hope because they, they have the energy that I had 24 years ago, but also now they have internet. They have international relationship. They have, they have opportunity to travel abroad to learn. So they, they will be a lot better than, than our generation and they will be the one that makes my dreams and my hope come true. Uh, I, I assure you, I, I am more hopeful just because of them. And, and it's, I would really want to call on the Americans or whoever international community to really stand with us. We have to work together because climate change or any global issues would never be dealt with by any one single country or one single organization. We have to work together, all of us. I don't want to end this without sharing with everyone an incredible quote you gave about the climate fight, which, which is something I wish everyone knew. Honestly, I almost want to get it tattooed. It's that, it's that good. But for our listeners, the, the quote is, the biggest threat to our planet is the belief that someone else will save it. So I'll say that again. The biggest threat to our planet is the belief that somebody else will save it. Yeah, actually, what I think I might actually get that tattoo. <laughs> well, it's too long for a tattoo, no? Okay. <laughs> but yeah, I love that one. That one was... Uh, sorry. So that, because that one was the one that Robert Swan said in Antarctica 24 years ago, and that one really changed my mind about everything, like about saving the world. So now it's, it's saving a lot of people. It's changing a lot of people's mindset as well. So I, I also think that it's the great quote that I use all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Hong, this has been such a pleasure. I'm glad we finally made this happen. Um, I'm privileged to know you and inspired by you all the time. Even though you're an incredible, incredibly humble person, I hope you recognize deep down that you're such a unique and valuable human being and your work is having such a profound impact. So, so thank you. Hung. I feel flattered. <laughs> I don't really think so at all. I'm just like, I'm nobody. I'm nobody. But anyway, it's, it's fun chatting with you. And it's great to know that, yeah, there are people like you still like interested in our work and, and trying to share our stories to, to other people. And I really appreciate it. Like, and, and my kids, they just texted me on WhatsApp and say, oh, I, we were so nervous. I was so nervous. I couldn't say what I wanted to say. But they, it, it really, it was their honor. Like, really, they were so happy and honored to, to be able to speak and talk to everyone on your channel. I did a great job. They are so inspiring, as, as, as are you. They are your young Hong proteges for sure. All right. Thanks, Hong. Bye.